Hey, just out of curiosity, if you're visiting today because you're here for somebody who's getting baptized, just shoot up a hand real quick. You're here to watch somebody get baptized. Praise God. Hey, it's great to have you here. It's going to be really fun uh, Sunday here in a minute. I'm just going to give us a little brief prelude to where we're going uh, before we start dunking people. But if I haven't met you yet, my name's Chris, and um, I am the lead pastor here at Antioch Salt Lake, and just excited to be in 2022. Anybody just glad that the 2021 has passed by, and here we are, and we're, um, we have really felt uh, an invitation from God in this new year to step by faith into a new season. How many of you just feel like we, we can't pull out of where we've been? You know, it's like 2020 started this like, this like uh, quicksand and it's almost been hard to fully come out of it. And we're, we're believing that there's an invitation for us to actually leave the old and step into the new in this new year. And part of what God's speaking to us about that is um, through the, the book of Ephesians, and so we are actually in the third week of a series called First Love Fire. And it's a little bit of an interesting title, but we get that from the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, John, hey, can we turn it down? Is it a little loud? Am I blasting you guys out there? Just turn it down just a little bit. I feel like I'm a little loud. I don't want to blow you guys away. I do get loud, so I need a little headroom. Okay, so um, book of Revelation, John, the apostle, has this crazy vision of Jesus. And in the vision, Jesus tells him to write seven letters to seven different churches in the region at that time. And the reason why we're studying the book of Ephesians is because as we were looking through those seven letters to the different churches in the book of Revelation, we really felt like the letter that was written to the church in Ephesus was speaking something to our church in 2022 in Salt Lake City. Specifically, uh, the letter commended them for their endurance commended them for, for their, their uh, desire to cling to the truth. And if you've been around this church and you know the history of this church, you know that there's, there's a people in this room that are people that are endurance and there are people that have clung to the truth, right? But he, he commends them, but then he says, hey, I have this one thing against you, Ephesian church. You have fallen from your first love, you have forgotten your heart's affection for where it was at first. And it was an invitation from Jesus to repent, to return to the things that they did at the beginning. And so that is why we're studying the book of Ephesians and why we get this, that our sermon series is called First Love Fire, because we figured if the Ephesian church needed to return to their first love, then maybe Paul's letter to the Ephesians can instruct us along the way and can wash us along the way and help us get there. You know what I'm saying? So we are in week three. Man, week one, Paul, just the beginning of Ephesians one, he just magnifies the good news of Jesus, which is what we just sung about for 25 minutes, okay? Was that Jesus came, he lived, he was crucified, put in the grave, but death could not hold him, the tomb could not keep him, and the power of God's resurrection life raised Jesus to new life. And in doing so, 
defeated sin, defeated death, defeated the one who had power over death, which is the devil. And in Ephesians 1, Paul just explodes with a love for the gospel. And so he leaned in and said, God, restore the joy of our salvation. If there's any place where we've come numb to the good news, Lord, wake us up again. Have you ever been there? You're like, oh, maybe I've heard this my whole life. And okay, cool. No, man, we got to dig in. Paul had a passion for the gospel. He understood that in Christ we had received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through the blood of Jesus. And then at the second part of chapter one, we got this glimpse into Paul's prayer life and how he had this personal walk with God. And we got this little window into what Paul prayed for. We leaned into the hope of our calling and really dug into God. Who are we called to be and what are you calling us to do as believers? And so as we get into Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to flip to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. And it's beautiful because this passage is going to take us in six verses from death to life. So we're going to see it on paper in the Word of God. And then we're going to watch it right in front of our faces in the baptismal tank. All right. And it's going to, I'm believing that where we have become a little. Oh man, maybe, maybe we've just forgotten how powerful the rea- reality of the resurrection is. I mean, can we be honest? When do we normally get ra- loud about the resurrection as the American church? Easter. How many, be honest, how many times you hear people preaching about the resurrection if it's not Easter? Hopefully at this church you'll hear it a lot, okay? But that's a problem, you know what I'm saying, church? It is a problem if we're only exalting the resurrection of Jesus once a year at Easter, just like it'd be a problem if we were only talking about his incarnation once a year at Christmas, right? So this is going to be fun, but to set the stage for where we're going this morning, I've got to tell you about my favorite movie to watch with my kids right now, okay? My favorite movie I watch with my kids right now is the new CGI version of The Lion King. Anybody? Come on. Anybody? See, just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've seen the old or the new, Okay. Okay, look, if you haven't seen The Lion King, you are missing out on a prophetic window into God's kingdom, okay? But I'm going to give you the cliff notes this morning. Here's why I love this movie, okay? First of all, Simba, all right? So Simba, check this out. You're going to get some revelation. This is powerful. I cry every time, every time I watch The Lion King. Simba was the rightful heir. He had the right to rule over the pride lands, right? But he was run out of town by a lying, deceptive, evil, false king who happened to be his uncle Scar, right? But look, because of the pain and guilt surrounding his father's death, Simba spends years wasting his life with Timon and Pumbaa. You remember this? He goes out, loose living, carefree life, while the kingdom that he was supposed to rule over was suffering under a tyrant, Okay, so he's living this carefree life until the moment when this wise counselor named 
Rafiki. Remember the baboon? Okay. This, if y'all have never seen this movie, you're like, what are we talking about in church right now? It's okay. This wise counselor named Rafiki leads Simba on this journey until he has an encounter with his father. Do you see this? He has an open vision of his father speaking to him from heaven. And do you remember Mufasa, who is dead, is speaking to him from the stars and the clouds, and he says to Simba in a vision, do you remember what he says? Remember who you are. Every time, remember who you are. You're the rightful king. You're my son. Come on, you got to go back to the pride lands and kick the evil false king off the throne, right? Remember who you are. I mean, every time he's like, oh, I just cry. This is so beautiful. Secondly, though, Scar. I mean, kids, is there a more hated character in the Disney library than Scar, right? Scar, at his core, is a jealous murderer who thought he deserved to be the ruler of the kingdom to the extent that he plotted to eliminate anyone in his way. Look, he is the picture of Satan. He is an archetype of a false royalty, He only was able to ascend to the throne through deception and lying and murder, just like the enemy, Satan. But what Disney captures so powerfully is the depiction of the pride lands, of what actually happens to the land, depending on who's king at any moment. And I always make sure with my kids, I'm like, guys, guys, look, you see? Look at the land, look at the land. I always try to point it out to them, okay? At first, the beginning of the movie, Mufasa reigns, and the land is lush and green. Remember the opening scene? Oh, just full of life, you know, circle of life. Everybody's singing. It's beautiful, right? Scar assumes the throne, and the pride lands are devastated, right? Drought-stricken, overhunted, just languishing until Simba returns. He challenges Scar. He overthrows the false king. And if you remember at the end of the movie, as soon as he overthrows the false king, the drought breaks, the rain starts to come, and the land immediately begins to return to lush, abundant life. And I want us to see in this illustration the, the, the dichotomy between life and death, the tension between life and death, and how life and death in a region is 100% connected to who's ruling. Life and death over this planet is 100% connected to who's ruling. Life and death over our nation is 100% connected to who's in power. Life and death over this city is 100% connected to who's in authority over this city. Life and death over your household is 100% connected to you because you're the ruler of your household. And so if you partner with evil things like scar, you will invite death into your household. If you partner with the righteousness of God, you will invite life into your household. Life and death is 100% connected to who is ruling. And this is a struggle we're all in, right? This is the tension, the tug of war between life and death. We can see the beauty and feel the potential, right, guys? Life has the potential to be so rich, so beautiful, 
especially in a place like Salt Lake. You can't drive down the street without just majesty, right? And so we see that life has this potential to be amazing, but then we're keenly aware of the struggle. We're keenly aware of the darkness, the selfishness within us, the jealousy, the injustice, and the death. The Word of God says it like this in John chapter 10. We're going to have it on the screen here. John 10, 9 and 10 says, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find green, safe pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, John 10, 10, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, because it's just so clear. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy and breed death, but Jesus came, and in this part, this part of the story in the Gospels, he was in the process of enacting a plan that would overthrow the thief and open a door for abundant life. Are you with me, church? So the thief Do you see the death in the thief's job description? Do you see the death? Steal, kill, destroy. Satan, like Scar, deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. He deceived them, and they abdicated their responsibility to rule over God's creation. If you read Genesis 1, it is crystal clear that God had given authority over the earth to man and woman. He said, rule, take dominion, rule, take dominion. But when they chose to believe Satan rather than God, check this out. There was a cataclysmic shift of power over the earth. God asked man to rule over the earth. The moment they believed Satan over God, they handed that power to the enemy. That's why the New Testament calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. So Scar actually ruled over the pride lands and actually devastated the pride lands, right? And so our, our enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy actually impacts the atmosphere of our planet wherever he's given permission to rule and reign. Romans says it like this, Romans 5, 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Can we get Romans 5, 12 up there? Sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. So say this with me, death spread. Say that again, death spread to all men because all sinned. Roman, he keeps going in verse 17. He says, for if because of one man's trespass, verse 17, let's get it up there. I want y'all to read this part with me. Because of one man's trespass, next two words right here, death reigned. That means death was king, right? Reign is a royalty. It's an authority word, right? Death reigned through that one man, but it's, that's not the end. Much more will those who receive, somebody say receive. receive, receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, check it out, 
reign in life. Do you, see, do you see the juxtaposition of how death reigned through the sin of one man? But when we receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, which we've been talking about in the gospel, we come into a position where now we reign in life. We are not ruled and reigned by death. Guys, do you know that that is gospel 101? That Jesus in his resurrection, this is why the church was on fire. This is why these guys were giving their lives and going nuts because they saw it with their own eyes. They saw his miracles. They saw his brutal crucifixion. And then they showed up at the tomb and were like, what? Even though he told them three times before it happened that he was going to resurrect, they were still shocked on the third day. I mean, come on, guys, just like us, right? So look, it's amazing that this death reigned. Death was king. Look here at the end of this one, verse 19. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Look at this. Death was king until one man's obedience. Until one man's obedience. And Jesus became the door into abundant life. He became the door into abundant life. Through Christ, I'm here to tell you today that you can exit the kingdom where death reigns and you can enter the kingdom where life reigns. Through Christ, I'm here to tell you today, you can exit the kingdom where condemnation reigns over your life and you can enter the kingdom where his justification reigns over your life. Through Christ, you can exit the kingdom where sin reigns over you and you can enter the kingdom where you reign over sin. That's not for like, you know, varsity Christians to reign over sin. I want you to know, church, that is basic gospel 101. The day you get saved, you have the power in Christ to reign over the sin that reigned over you your whole life. Because it's a miracle, because it's not even about you. It's because you get a new power inside of you. Here's the deal. When you, before Jesus, you were a slave to sin, meaning you couldn't get out of those shackles if you want to. After the blood of Jesus, after the resurrection, you come into a new power where every chain is severed by the blood of Jesus. Now, you can still hold on to those chains if you want, but you need to know you're choosing to do so. You didn't have the power to get free on this side. You have all the power on the other side of your resurrection baptism to be free in the resurrection life. Are you with me? Through Jesus, you can exit the kingdom ruled by a false king, and you can enter the kingdom ruled by the king of kings. But there's only one way to pass through the door, by grace through faith. Say it with me. By grace through faith. One more time. By grace through faith. Look at this. Back in 517, we cannot miss this. Back in Romans 5.17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, much more will those who receive. We, are, we have to receive the grace of God. You know, Jesus has died for everybody. Jesus has made the door available. It's an open door for everybody, but there's a moment where we choose to pass through that door 
and receive the grace of God. And receive, this is one of my favorite passages, my favorite verses, receive the free gift of righteousness. It's just so clear. Sometimes theology and, and, and the gospel can just get cloudy for us. Look, it's clear. Jesus offers us a free gift where you have been unrighteous, where you have missed it, where you have failed, where you have chosen all kinds of stuff that you would never dare people in this room actually know what's going on in the depths of your life, just like me in my past, okay? Jesus says, it's okay that you're that messed up because your righteousness is a free gift that I put on top of you. If you'll receive it, you walk through the door, check out Ephesians Two, that's all leading us into our baptism passage for today. And I want you to know on the front end, the first three, we're gonna read six verses, okay? Three, three and three. The first three verses are really depressing, okay? So I just need you to like get ready for, they're really honest, but they're really depressing, okay? The next three verses are some of the most beautiful verses in all scripture. You know why? Because to understand the beauty and power of grace takes honesty. It takes an honesty of who we really are, maybe where you're really at today. And it is that honesty of where we're really at that positions us for an encounter with God's grace. Check it out. You were dead. There's the death. You were dead in your trespass and sin. You once walked following the course of the power of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience. Basically, you followed Scar, you followed him willingly, you participated in the destruction of the kingdom, right? You followed the false king, you joyfully walked after Satan. We all, all of us, none of us are, are out of this passage. All once lived in the passions of our flesh, we carried out the desires of our body, we did whatever we wanted, we did anything that came to our mind, and we were by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, this is heavy. This is heavy, but it needs to be heavy because we need to understand that when Adam and Eve align themselves with Scar in the garden, okay, when they, when they pledge their allegiance and their belief to Satan over God, that they became enemies of God, in his holiness, and they became rightful recipients of his judgment. How many of you guys know that, uh, that good judges matter? Go with me here real quick. If you saw, you were in a courtroom, and you saw a criminal, and it, he, was, he was a convicted murderer, thief, rapist, you, you, we had it on video, right? And we bring this guy out for his sentencing, and the judge goes, you know, it's obvious you're a terrible person. It's obvious you've convicted all of these felonies. But you know what? I'm just kind of having a great day today. And I, you know, had a great lunch with my wife on my lunch break, and I'm just feeling good. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pardon you. Just go live free. What would you say about that judge? Would you call him gracious or would you call him unjust? You would call him unjust. You see what I'm saying? Because listen, in our hearts somewhere, if we can tap into this for a second, in our hearts somewhere, we know what is right and what is wrong and we crave justice because that is the image of the God we've been created in. 
right? And so God is a God of justice, which means as long as we're still in verses one through three, we need to be afraid. Wrath is not a fun Bible topic. You don't want to do a word study on wrath, okay? It's not, it's not enjoyable, okay? But as long as you're still in verses one through three, there is a rightful sense of like, oh man, I'm on the wrong team here. This has woken many a people up, okay? This woke me up when I was a freshman in college doing all of this stuff, y'all. And I hit a bottom and realized, oh man, I'm on the wrong side of this deal. But I told you the next three verses are gonna get way better. Come with me, okay? Look, verse four, but God. Somebody say, but God. Oh man, who's grateful that it doesn't say, but you decided to figure your own life out, all right? You decided to solve your own problem. No, but God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, man, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the riches of his grace. Look, baptism is a snapshot of what happens in every single person's life. When you wake up from being led by the false king of this world and you decide to receive the grace of God, a miracle happens inside of you. By grace, you get saved and you're resurrected. Baptism is a declaration that we can be alive because Jesus was alive. Did you notice how it said in verse five, made us alive together with Christ. Somebody say, with Christ. With Christ. You can say it again. Come on, kids. With Christ. Look, our resurrection is only made possible because of his resurrection. It's only made possible with him. Baptism, I want to say this clearly because I think that depending on what tradition you've been from or where you've been in church, we say stuff like, baptism um, is a symbol or it is a, a picture, or you know, it is, it's a metaphor. I want you to know that what I believe about baptism is that baptism is a powerful prophetic declaration, that it actually has power to change the person, to do something in their heart and life, and to change us as we watch. So I want you to know, you are not here to spectate nine baptisms. We're about to dunk nine people. You are not here to spectate nine baptisms. You are here to get met with the reality of the resurrection through Jesus as you watch every one of these guys go out and come back under. Buried with Christ, raised to new life, all right? This is the gospel. Jesus said, last thing here, then we're going to Start dunking some people, all right? In John 11, Jesus says this famous quote about the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. You know who Jesus said this to? He said this to a woman named Martha. Martha's brother had died four days earlier, four days, and had been in a tomb 
for four days. And Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. To the one who believes, he will live even if he dies. He said it to Martha on the fourth day. Pick it up in verse 38. I want to pull you into this story real quick and see what happens here, okay? In verse 28 of John 11, okay, he was moved. Lazarus, if, if you haven't heard this story before, Lazarus was the brother of Martha and Mary who were dear friends of Jesus. He had gotten sick and he had died, but he had kind of died because Jesus didn't come immediately when he heard he was sick. Jesus heard he was sick. He could have made it there in two days. He waited two days, made it there in four. Some of y'all need to hear the Lord. There is an intentional delay sometimes from the Lord so he can show his resurrection power in a situation in your life. Jesus knew Lazarus was sick. He waited two days. He showed up on the fourth day. I've heard that in Jewish custom, after the third day, they think your spirit's already gone, right? So this was like, past the permanent. This was done deal. Stanky man in a tomb. Day four. He's moved and he comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Take away the stone. She argues with him, okay? Martha argues with Jesus. says, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. He's been dead, say it with me, four days. Jesus said, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And they take away the stone. What's amazing about this story is that Jesus never touched the tomb. He never touched it. He invited them Check this out. Stay with me. He invited them to break an agreement with death by rolling the stone away themselves. How much faith do you have to have to stand outside of a tomb that stinks already because a dead guy's been in there four days and put your hands on that tomb with a group of your friends? I don't know, but it was a group together. And Jesus said, if you believe, you will see. And they, they made the act of faith that catalyzed a miracle that day. They rolled the stone away. Check it out. Verse 41, they took the stone away. Jesus looked, lifted his eyes. He said, Father, thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but on account of these people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. He said these things. He cried out with a loud voice. If your ears are really sensitive, cover them, come about to scream, okay? Because Jesus didn't whisper, Lazarus, come out. He said, Lazarus, come out. They opened the grave. Jesus called him out. And check it out. The man that died comes out. His hands, feet, bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him, let him go. Stay with me, guys. How freaked out would you be in this moment? Be honest, okay? Dead guy, stinky, four days, just comes walking out looking like a mummy. And Jesus says, 
Don't miss it. Unbind him. Let him go. Here's the point. Only the voice of Jesus can resurrect a man. But it takes the community around him to unbind him from his grave clothes. Only Jesus can call us out. But it is in the life of Jesus' people that we get unwrapped from all the death. Come on, people, you guys know, you got testimonies in this room. You were struggling with something until your buddies came alongside of you and said, no, we're gonna lean in this together. You were wrapped up in something until you decided to get honest about it and walk in the light. And then when you confessed it to somebody, boom, it broke. Your grave clothes come off with the people around you, a people that believe in Jesus enough to push on your stone when you're four days dead. That's the church. That is why we're called in this community. So if you're getting baptized, we're going to celebrate that Lazarus is coming forth today. So you guys go ahead and stand on up and come line up over here on the the left-hand side along these windows. And...